The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke chapter 14 beginning at the 25th verse. Glory to you Lord Jesus Christ. Now large crowds were travelling with him and he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he had laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is fit neither for the soul nor for the manure heap. They throw it away. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, where do we begin? This is one challenging Bible passage set down for today in the listing of readings uh, that we call the lectionary that's used in the church in many denominations around the world. I'm mindful it may trigger some sensitivities. I wrestled with its appropriateness for Father's Day. Some of the language and ideas feel problematic, especially for fathers who may be estranged from children or struggling financially or grieving loss of some kind. The New Testament reading set down for today was the little letter of Philemon and it was much more fatherly as Paul was writing in its approach. But I decided to wrestle with this passage and invite us to do it together so that we might actually dig and find the treasure that's there that will help us to have momentum and to be able to move with grace. So let us pray. Loving God, may the words that I speak and the thoughts of all our minds and hearts help us to grow in understanding about what it means to be your disciple and to live lives that are full of grace so that others might come to know you and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, rather than labour through the whole sermon to get to the conclusion, I decided I'd give it to you right now up front. So here it is. Jesus is not asking his disciples to hate their nearest and dearest, not in the sense that we understand hate 
Neither is he asking them to give away every possession. And he's not asking them to see to the end of the discipleship journey with a full reckoning of exactly what the journey is going to cost. Who of us would even take the first step if we really understood what it is that will be asked of us along the journey? To think that Jesus is saying these things would be crazy because hating one's family and intentionally becoming destitute a counter to Jesus' teaching elsewhere and the big picture of Jesus and his ministry and his purpose and his intentions. Jesus' imperative is always to love God and others with the whole of our being and to love generously regardless of the cost. Loving God and loving others cannot be separate things. They come as one package God is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And loving Jesus frees us to love one another, including our families, with generous, authentic, unconditional love, to love as we are first loved by God, no matter the fraughtness of what those relationships might entail. Radical love requires radical devotion. Radical love frees us to move with grace, unencumbered by unhealthy attachments to people, things or achievements. In this passage, Jesus makes some very radical demands on those who would be his disciples. To love him the most more than anything or anyone. To live our lives as an extension of his. To be aware that there is a cost. And then finally, he says, to be salt. What? We'll talk more about that in a minute. Today's reading is a great example of a passage that we cannot read literally in English and hope to get what was meant originally. And there are a few reasons for this. Firstly, the nuances and meaning of first century Middle Eastern language are not always conveyed easily by the time we get to them in an English translation that's already been through several iterations of other languages. Eastern language is vivid and uses powerful images to convey meaning. For example, it wasn't uncommon to use an extreme word to convey something important, to use it as hyperbole, a word like hate. We understand hate as a combination of various negative emotions like repulsion, disgust, fear, anger, Contempt. The word that Luke used, translated here as hate, is not so much an emotion as an attitude or a mode of action. The point is not how we feel about our family, but where we place our family ties in our relationship with God. The parallel passage in Matthew helps to make the meaning clearer, and I think it'll be worthwhile just spending a minute to look at it. In Matthew 10, we read, Whoever loves father or mother 
more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. You see, in this Middle Eastern culture, a person's whole identity came from their family ties and their place in their local community. Now, about being salt. Salt is a first century metaphor that needs some unpacking so that we can get what it is that Jesus is saying about discipleship. The use of salt in Palestine was to flavor food, make the ground easier, for ploughing and planting, and for preserving. So when Jesus says his disciples will be like salt, he means they will give flavour and help life taste good for themselves, but especially for others. They will prepare the ground for people to receive the kingdom of God in their families and the wider community. They will preserve what is life-giving. So I think we can safely say that Jesus is not asking his disciples to distance themselves from their family. Jesus is asking his disciples to love him more than anything or anyone and to be salt-like, living lives that flavour, prepare and preserve Jesus' life amongst family and community. So language is one factor in reading and understanding a biblical passage, it was, a, it was intended to its original audience and interpreting what it means for us in informed and appropriate ways. Another factor to consider is context. And Stuart and I really do our best to contextualise our preaching so that we can offer an informed understanding of the Bible passage and its t- intended me- meaning as we preach each week. Sometimes, though, we have to recognise that even biblical scholars aren't able to provide a definitive explanation of what's going on in some texts. The meaning has been lost across the passage of time. They're very few, but, but it does happen. So here's some context for today's reading. It follows the famous parable about the kingdom of God that is represented by a great feast. A man is giving a great feast and sends his servant to bring in the people that he'd invited. But they couldn't make it. They loved other things more. A piece of newly acquired real estate, a new team of oxen. Did anyone get that for Father's Day? And a recent marriage. When they send their excuses, the man becomes angry and he sends his servants to bring in the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. All those who would normally be excluded from society by virtue of their physical or their social disability. And then straight after that comes today's reading, which begins with these words. Now large crowds were travelling with him and he turned and said to them, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and he's getting closer. The phrase large crowds preempts the crowds that will greet him on his arrival in Jerusalem 
where they will be expecting a king who's going to establish a new empire. They don't yet understand that rather than a conquering king, Jesus establishes his reign in love, peace and humility. That's the way of the cross. So the context reveals that this is a series of sayings by Jesus to assert the necessity for complete devotion to Jesus for anyone who would be his disciple. Well, what is a disciple? That's an important question to ask here. A disciple is someone who learns from and ultimately becomes a believer and follower of another. Calling and making disciples was a central feature of Jesus' ministry. He invited people to be formed in a way of living that was an extension of his own. Jesus called disciples to reorient their lives towards the kingdom of God. In Luke, God's kingdom is a place where the poor are blessed, the hungry are filled, and those who weep are comforted. It's a place where those who put their possessions first, who are full and ignore the needy, and who laugh at the expense of those in their care, find themselves far away from the kingdom. The rule of thumb in the kingdom of God is do to others as you would have them do to you. Each gospel places a different emphasis on the nature of discipleship. In Luke, Jesus' emphasis in forming disciples is teaching them about what the kingdom of God is like, a place where everyone's welcome and there is responsibility to care for others, especially the last, the lost, and the least. In Luke, Jesus trains disciples for far-reaching witness and proclamation of this kingdom, and that becomes the focus of Luke's ongoing narrative of the early church in the Acts of the Apostles. So in today's reading, Jesus makes the people aware of the radical demand, demands of being a disciple. To summarise, if we want to live as a disciple, Jesus asks that we live for him first and foremost. To find our identity in him and to be shaped by his life of love, compassion, and service. But there is a cost, for sure. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The cross ultimately is an instrument of death. As we carry the cross, we're dying to self, and the unhelpful, unhealthy attachments to people, things, and achievements that we might look to, to shape our identity rather than being formed in Jesus' likeness. We die to self, but not in a self-deprecating way. Part of the joy of the Christian life is being enlivened and freed to be our true selves, free from the false humility or pride that we discovered last week. And I'd suggest that if we find ourselves in a place where we find we can't be our true selves, and it doesn't feel authentic, that we need to ask some questions. In being a disciple, Jesus is not asking us to bend ourselves out of shape. Carrying the cross frees us from the bondage of living selfishly 
focused on the demands of ego. Carrying the cross liberates us to live for others, to have their best interests at heart and their well-being as our priority. Carrying the cross helps us to gain momentum and to move with grace. But here's a tip though. Someone said to me recently that to be able to carry our cross, we do need to put it down from time to time for rest and refreshment. When we do that, ultimately we're able to carry the cross further and for longer. So to come back to where we started, living as a disciple of Jesus frees us to love others, especially our family, in the best possible way. It frees us to have a healthy and generous relationship with our possessions, seeing them as gifts to share rather than icons that define our identity. To carry the cross is certainly to move with grace, to move with love, to move with compassion, to move with humility. The cross isn't a weight that impedes us, it propels us so that we can participate in bringing in the kingdom of God through our own lives. I wonder, do you consider yourself a disciple of Christ? It's such an exciting and engaging challenge. Much easier said than done, of course. But whether in our family or beyond, the hard work of love is central to discipleship, not hate. And love is always about relationship. So how do we love well? so that we are able to care for ourselves and yet desire the best for another. There are lots of ways, but I'd suggest by, by listening, by being present, in ways where, that we don't become enmeshed or entangled in those things that aren't ours to sort, to set healthy boundaries that, help, that allow us to love in healthy ways, and we see Jesus doing that in his own life. There are millions of other questions that arise for us, I think. Like how do we protect family time and yet be available to participate in Christian community and service? How do families spend quality time together, vital for the development of young people, and yet be outward looking to the needs of others? Wrestling with these and the other million of questions that, that are hanging there can be a conversation that we share together. That's something that we can do as a church family as we encourage and support one another in our ongoing journey in discipleship. Amen. Would you please... And as we get ready to sing together again. <clears throat>